Hello and welcome to episode five. Wow, five of Nerd Explosion on the Candy Clark podcast. I am your host, the Candy Clark himself, and I am joined by film buff, anime buff, all the buffs of pop culture, John Wintrobe. John, how are we doing this morning? Mostly good, but slightly disappointed about that Smash Brothers reveal. Ah, yes. We will talk about that as the show goes along. Uh, Before we start, just a couple quick housekeeping things. Number one, we are recording this on a Saturday morning instead of a Thursday morning, just because, you know, life happened and I had no downtime the last two days. But a lot of news broke out since then. So that, that's, where, that's where the news range comes from. Also, be sure to check us out on the Candid Clark Spotify and thecandidclark.com. But announcement to make is that for next week, we will actually be live on KLJX LP Flagstaffs from 10.30 to 12.30 on Thursday. Be sure to check us out, KLJX LP Flagstaff, KJAC Radio. It's going to be very exciting. But before that happens next week, we have one more recording over Zoom. So let's get into this. For the second episode in a row, we are going to start off with discussion about a trailer. This isn't a MCU trailer. This is an anime trailer. It is Loop on the Third. The yeah. English dub got its trailer several days ago. So, John... Break it down for us. Yeah, so Wupon the Third, the first, got its first official dub trailer. We also got a sub trailer as well, so you can check out both of those on G Kids' YouTube channel. The voice cast for the movie will, of course, feature the main cast from the TV shows on Toonami. Tony Oliver will, of course, reprise his role as the titular character Wupon the Third. We will recognize Tony Oliver most as the ADR director for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, as he's done the ADR for parts three through five. It will also see Richard Epcar reprise his role as Daisuke Jigen. He, of course, plays old Joseph Joestar in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Lex Wang as Goemon Ishikawa. Michelle Ruff as Fujiko Mine, who, of course, plays uh, young Satoru Fujinuma in The Race and Euphemia Wee Britannia in Code Geass. And lastly, we will see Doug Eraltz as Inspector Zenigata. Zenigata is, of course, my favorite character in Lupin Third, and he will be voiced by the guy that does Polnareff in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. So. Go ahead. Very stacked main cast. We'll also be getting a new Wupon the Third girl as Wupon has a tendency like James Bond to have different romantic interests for all of his appearances. And this time around, we have a girl named Letitia who is being played by Rory Himes. The two biggest things that really stood out when watching shorts, first of all, oh my gosh, the animation looks so crisp. And so incredible. There's a shot in the trailer where you see Lupin's facial hair. And the detail on it was so incredible. I thought, wait, is this anime? I mean, it is a different style of animation as it is 3D animation. But the level of detail was so phenomenal to me. Also, the soundtrack is the other thing I want to talk about. The soundtrack really gave this noir kind of feeling, kind of a mix of like James Bond and and Batman kind of, this, this very espionage and adventure type of soundtrack. And it really gave this overall atmosphere of a fun time. The one Lupin the third movie I've seen in the past is Castle Cagliostro, which 
still blows my mind it was directed by Hayao Miyazaki, but it was. And it was a, it was a fun movie. Not It wasn't the most memorable thing I've ever seen, but it was a fun heist slash adventure slash whatever you want to categorize it as. It was a fun movie, and this one... The, the, the animation looks a thousand times better than that did. Well, to be fair, that was made decades ago. And this looks to be really fun. It is in select theaters on October 18th. Hope we get a chance to see it dubbed in theaters if it does come to Flagstaff. If not, then we'll watch it some other way some other time. But that is very exciting. Yeah, going back to your comments about the score, Yuji Ono, the composer for Wupon the Third, has at this point been composing Wupon for over 40 years. Wow. <laughs> that, yeah, that main Wupon the Third theme that you hear in Castle Kagoyostan, you hear in the trailer here, has appeared in almost every Wupon the Third show and movie since the second season of the series, which is crazy. It is, and I'm very excited to see the kind of action that this movie will present. We, we have this MacGuffin, which is a journal, diary, whatever it is called, whichever the two is referred to. So it should be interesting to see. I'm, I'm mainly looking forward to seeing uh, the animation, the look of it, because like I said, it, it blew my mind how good it looked. That was the main thing that I noticed while watching the trailer. Yeah, the big story point of the film and why it's called Lupin the Third the first is because Wupon is trying to steal an item that his grandfather was never able to, which is that diary. Absolutely. It's, it's, it should be a really fun movie. I am looking forward to please come to Flagstaff, please come to Flagstaff because I will, I, we will go see it obviously if it does. Yeah. The film will be releasing in theaters dubbed on October 18th and subbed on October 21st with theater releases only being, at AMC currently, but hopefully it'll come to Harkins as well. And it's also getting a digital release sometime in December. So in case it doesn't come here to Flagstaff, that will be another option for us. All right, transitioning from anime to the American TV and film industry. We'll get back to anime at some point, don't worry. Basically the entire second half, if not more of the show will of the episode will compose of that. So Miss Marvel has, has her own TV series. It is the first Muslim Marvel character to, to appear in her own title. Mm-hmm. And she has been cast. Tell us more. Yeah, so Aman Vawani, a relative unknown who hasn't appeared in any major Hollywood productions, probably because of how young she is, has been cast as Miss Marvel, the first teenage Muslim hero to appear in anything on the small or big screen, which is very exciting. Miss Marvel, of course, debuted earlier in the last 10 years as kind of a replacement for Spider-Man as a new hero to relate to the younger market and audience, kind of similar to Miles Morales. Uh, She is a teenage Muslim inhuman with powers very similar to Mr. Fantastic and Ant-Man, where she can kind of elasticize her body while also changing her mass so that she can grow larger or smaller. What, what I want to touch on specifically, and you, you brought up a Muslim teenager, specifically she is Pac, uh, Pakistani-American, mm-hmm. which is really cool because one of my best friends is actually half Pakistani himself, and he actually used to live there. So that hits home with me, and I just really like 
how much diversity that that we are seeing in Marvel right now. You know, we we are seeing we are seeing homosexual characters. We are seeing Asian characters. So we're seeing a bunch of representation, and it's really cool to see. Obviously, we have the main stars, but now that the Infinity Saga has come to an end, we are now seeing this new wave of minorities being represented in Marvel, and I think that is incredible miss marvel is the newest example of this a very encouraging direction for marvel students going forward i know when you took public speaking you did a speech about about minorities the lack of minority representation in hollywood well marvel is starting to bring in this whole new wave obviously black panther uh when it was most when it was mostly a black cast that was incredible because it, it hit home with with those people and and all of us enjoyed it as a result it was a fantastic film and i just like what marvel continues to do with its minorities yeah well black panther wasn't just successful because of its all black cast a lot of the reason why black panther is so good and has so much influence uh, multiculturally is the crew that works behind it because the crew was also mostly pocs and i hope that Miss Marvel will have something similar. I know that the comics have recently been really good, and that is mostly attributed to the fact that POC is currently writing them. According, uh, most directors and writers are also Muslim for Miss Marvel, so there continues to be representation behind the scenes as well. Yeah, no production date has been officially announced for the series, but it is likely that since Miss Marvel has been cast, the production will start sooner rather than later, with a possible release either late next year or early 2022. Looking forward to that. We talked about Nick Fury series. We have a lot of Disney Plus series coming. A lot of very exciting stuff to check out. Yeah, between WandaVision, Nick Fury, the Loki series, Falcon and Winter Soldier, Miss Marvel, Moon Knight, She-Hulk, Marvel is has a lot of tv shows planned and they're all really exciting oh yeah there's not one where i'm just like eh, i don't care that much about no all of these look very interesting and i'm at least intrigued about every single one of them there's not one i'm just like eh, i don't care about that's that's not the way it is right now now oh boy i don't i don't like talking about this movie this movie is absolutely terrible but amazing spider-man 2 was Oh, it was so bad. It was one of the worst written films I have ever seen, especially superhero films. Yes, Andrew Garfield is a great actor. Just watch The Social Network. If you haven't, it is now 10 years old. And there was a character in the film, basically one of the, one of the three – yes, there were multiple villains in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Dillon, played by Jimmy Fox, who fell into an electric eel tank and became Electro. And he was blue. Yes. Electro himself was good, but Max Dillon, oh boy, oh boy. Yes. But guess what? Jamie Foxx is back as Electro. He is going to appear in the untitled and future Spider-Man Far From Home sequel. And Jamie Foxx confirmed this himself on Twitter, and he said that he won't be blue. Thank God. What are your thoughts on this, Wintrow? Yeah. Electro is probably one of my favorite Spider-Man villains. So the see that they're not only bringing the character back, but bringing Jamie Foxx back as him for Marvel Spider-Man 3 is really exciting, especially since the character will probably be way more 
compelling or at least more comic book accurate this time around. Not that like the thing, him falling into the electric eels wasn't, but a lot of the personality and, and the craziness that we saw of Electro and Amazing Spider-Man 2 was a bit off. And even if that kind of take appeared in the Raimi movies, it would have still been too silly and too out there. But for the gritty world that Amazing Spider-Man was shooting for, it just felt very off. And that type of character shouldn't have appeared in the Amazing Spider-Mans. Now for the MCU, however, considering how they have been able to make Vulture and Mysterio compelling villains in the MCU is nuts. And I have full faith that they'll be able to do the same for Electro. I hope they adapt him well. Yeah, he felt really out of place in the Amazing Spider-Man too. So I think he like he like he definitely would have been much better in a Raimi film, but unfortunately it was it just didn't work out well. But Jimmy Fox being back for this character is great. Jimmy Fox was not the reason Electro didn't work in the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Jimmy Fox is a fantastic actor in Hollywood. Just some, just a couple examples. Baby Driver, fantastic. Django Unchained might be his best film and is an incredible lead performance in that intense movie. Also, Horrible Bosses. I thought he was hilarious in Horrible Bosses. A fantastic film. Check it out if you haven't. It is a fun time to watch with friends. So the fact that he's going to be in this film, it just really excites me. He's a high caliber actor, and he should be in as many films as possible. That works for him. And to see him now in the MCU, I, I am more than happy with this development. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marvel's Spider-Man 3, of course, will see John Watts return as director, and the film is set to begin shooting sometime this fall in Atlanta. I really hope it's fantastic. It has a lot to live up to after the post credit scene of Far From Home, which left us all in shock, and it left us all bewildered. It Basically, Spider-Man's identity was, was shown to the entire world, and you hear J. Jonah Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons. Perfect casting, by the way. Just I can't imagine anyone else's J. Jonah Jameson. And... Yeah, not cl no clue what's going to happen going forward, but I am very excited to see it. And now that Jimmy Fox is in it, I'm even more excited. Now, I have made a personal vow throughout my life. Now, there, now there, there are a couple of vows in my life where I am all about, okay, I cannot do this or else it goes against my identity. One of them is I do not ever want to watch a live action disney remake and i still haven't there are a bunch of live action disney remakes that have come out some of these include aladdin which is my favorite animated disney movie lion king which i don't get why so many people saw it on top of multiple other films mulan is the latest example it, the fact that mushu isn't in that movie is a disgrace to the original but we have something a bit interesting here, and something I was reading up on a little bit ago before we record. Barry Jenkins, who worked on Moonlight, who won Best Picture a few years ago, is working on a Lion King prequel. Now, technically, this isn't a live-action remake. It is now a prequel, and Barry Jenkins, the same filmmaker who is working on a new 
a Netflix show called Underground, which, oh, Underground Railroad, which, oh boy, that looks extremely intense, and it looks to be an emotional roller coaster. So, yeah, Barry Jenkins is going to work on this Lion King prequel movie. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's unknown whether this will take anything from the animated films or TV shows or whatever that are spinoffs of the original Lion King. But I'm excited for this, actually. I'm interested to see what Barry Jenkins will do. He's a way more um, diverse or interesting director than Jon Favreau, who directed the first Lion King. And Moonlight and his other film, If Beale Street Could Talk, were fantastic. Um, They're amazing, and Moonlight absolutely deserved its best picture when the year it came out. Oh, it oh it did. Even though there was controversy, obviously that that's an infamous incident that doesn't need to be repeated. Mm-hmm. But yes, this doesn't qualify as a live action remake. It's a news story, so I actually will see this. This is not me breaking my vow. This is not me breaking my vow. So I'm actually looking forward to this. I hope I hope it tells tells a, a new story about the Lion King world, and I hope it amplifies the world we see. However, I don't recognize the existence of the live action film. I don't, and I never will. Yeah. I, don't want, I don't recognize any of the live action Disney remakes. The Lion King original is the only one that I recognize. The only way that Disney will, be able, will get me to go see this in theaters is if they don't do the full realistic CGI. Because the acting in the live-action Lion King actually isn't that bad. The biggest issues I have with it are that the photorealism takes away a lot of character from that was in the original. You don't have the human-type facial expressions, so while the animals are talking like humans, they don't look like humans, and that doesn't work for me at all. It, I remember watching the live-action Lion King trailer, and I thought to myself, this looks so weird for the reasons that you mentioned. It just, it looks so off, and I'm hoping that it looks different for the, for the prequel or else. I mean, as interested as I am, and Barry Jenkins is a great filmmaker, I don't know how much it's going to work. Yeah. Again, I don't think that they're going to change it, mainly because the first one just made so much money. I highly doubt that they will change um, the photorealistic animals for um, Barry Jenkins' um, prequel movie. So, but they could. I mean, who knows? It could happen. I just don't have a whole lot of faith in it actually happening. All right, let's talk about it. When something that has not made you very happy, obviously, in the last in the last year or two, Super Smash Brothers. Uh, Smash Bros. Ultimate has been a massive success on the Nintendo Switch, a gaming device I still need. But Super Smash Bros. Ultimate is still a game that I play with friends from time to time. And we have a new character for this game. And, ooh, it is Steve from Minecraft. All right, floor is yours. Let it out. What do you think? First of all, I have to say that despite the fact that I don't like that Steve from Minecraft is in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, I have to applaud Nintendo for making him actually look like a great playable character that could be fun within the world of the game. 
I also really like the new map and the new music for it. And this doesn't come as a huge surprise. We have already gotten another Microsoft character in Smash Brothers, which is Banjo-Kazooie. And while it would have been cooler to have maybe gotten a character like Master Chief in Smash, it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, Steve from Minecraft was picked. He's also a more interesting character when it comes to the gameplay translation from Minecraft into Smash. And I can tell that the game developers probably had a lot of fun making him a playable character within the game. He does look very fun. There was uh, there's a shot in the train where Duck Hunt is lying on the ground and Steve place, places an explosive next to him. And, he, and, it, and the result is an insane explosion. Yeah. And, I just, and I just thought to myself, huh, he, he probably is going to have some OP attacks, honestly, like that one. If you, can, if you can place that well and trap your enemy near it, Oh boy, that could do some serious damage. Yeah, the thing with Steve and how the gameplay looks is that most of his actual abilities seem like they're craftables, like in Minecraft, but you actually have to, like, craft them while fighting. So you have to get away from your enemy, start crafting so they don't attack you, and then place whatever object it is. Because, like, with the TNT, when he blew up Duck Hunt, he had to place the redstone first, then the TNT, then ignite the redstone to blow up Duck Hunt. And I feel like this makes for a really fun character to use in casual play, but I don't feel like Steve will be very useful in the competitive scene, because in one-on-one fights, he might get a little wrecked by most of the other fighters. Yeah, there are obviously characters that do much better one-on-one versus a group. An example of this is almost every sword character. Sword characters are unbelievable one-on-one but if you put them in groups not the best yeah another good example is min min who was the last fighter announced for smash from arms who is extremely versatile and really useful in one-on-one fights yeah and here's one thing i've realized there are characters that when you first play the game are very easy to use obviously the sword characters are very easy you just you just stun them with your sword, and you deliver powerful smashes with your sword. And then there are characters, I would say Shulk is an example of this. Characters that on first play look very complicated, but if you can figure out how to use them, they can be very deadly. And I feel like Steve is the latest example of this. It's gonna, it, the first few times I'm going to play as Steve is going to be very annoying, I can just tell. But the more, but the more you play with them, you can, you can actually use so many creative abilities. So Steve is not going to be one of those characters that you can just pick up immediately. Like Joker. Joker, you can easily play and win fights the first few times you play as Joker. Steve is not like that. you got to get used to his moves. And I think that's going to be very interesting going forward. It really requires, like, hey, play this, get used to his character, and then you can actually have fun with him. Yeah, I also really like the various skins that they're using for Steve. Not only are we getting the female skin for Minecraft, and don't I think it's Alex. Um, we're getting her as an alternate skin for Steve, as well as the Enderman and Zombie, which is pretty neat. It can, I can tell that the creators of the game definitely like Minecraft, otherwise they wouldn't have put so much effort into Steve's abilities and skins as they have. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing the full gameplay of him, and I'm looking forward to just trying out Steven. And I'm just looking forward to more Smash characters. Super Smash Bros. Ultimate is, is one of the best 
party games ever made, I think. And to bring in a Minecraft... If you're a Minecraft fan, you love this. And that's going to bring a whole new audience to the game. It's just going to continue to be successful. I just hope I can Nintendo Switch at some point so I can fully play this to the fullest. Yeah, and if you don't like Steve being in the game, we have a lot more DLC fighters coming soon because he's only the second new fighter from this pass. So we have at least three more coming. I'm looking forward to seeing what other characters, name one character you would like to see because I have one. I would love to see Phoenix Wright from Ace Attorney in this game. Capcom, of course, already has Mega Man in Smash, so it wouldn't be too far of a stretch for them to have another character from one of their games in it. And Phoenix is already in multiple fighting games as he's in Marvel vs. Capcom. And I feel like there's a lot of really fun things you could do with him while also keeping it relatively simple, unlike characters like Steve or Min Min, which have a lot of variation in their abilities. Phoenix would be more straightforward like Joker. That would actually be really cool. The one thing I want to see, the one character I want in this game. So you do have Cloud in this game. But here's the thing, though. You can't really have Cloud without having his arch nemesis, Sephiroth. I need him in a Smash Bros. game right now. After playing Final Fantasy Remake, I am on the Sephiroth hype train. That final boss against Sephiroth, spoilers, is one of the most fun gaming just moments ever I have had. That fight was so exhilarating. I was, I was sweating. I have never been so focused in my entire life. And I am fo- on anything I take seriously, I am focused. But that was focused times a thousand. And I actually just barely beat him first try. It was one of the most satisfying gaming moments I've ever had. And I played on normal. I did not play on easy. I just want to emphasize that. And I want him in Smash Bros. just so we can have Cloud and Sephiroth facing off. Please get this done, especially after how great Remake was this year. So that's what I want. Let, let's see if both me and Wintrobe's uh, desires are satisfied during this pass and the coming passes. I definitely think that Phoenix Wright is more likely than Sephiroth. No offense. <laughs> just because... Phoenix is a Capcom character, and since he doesn't have a specific console representing him, it's way more likely than Sephiroth, who is a Sony character. This is true. This is true. But who knows? Sony and Square Enix could become friends once again and get Sephiroth into the game. I mean, we've already seen that with Cloud and Joker, so who knows? Absolutely. All right. Now we are back into the world of anime, but before we get into the three weekly episodes, we have a couple games to quickly touch on. First, Origairu, aka My my Teenage Romantic Comedy Snafu, is having its third season have a video game adaptation, and it's not currently localized yet, yet it could possibly in the future. We really hope it is. And basically, it allows you to play out the events and determine what ending you want to receive. What are your thoughts on this? So, Origairu's visual novels, um, it's already had adaptations for the first two seasons of of the show. And the visual novels basically allow you to play it like a dating simulator, where you can end up with whatever character you want to from the show. And a lot of characters like Saki and Saika 
and Yumiko get a lot more development in the games because of this. Although you also have the added benefit of picking whoever you want Hachiman to end up with, whether it's uh, Yukino, Aroha, or Yui. The game is being developed by Mages, who is the studio behind the first two games, as well as Steinsgate's visual novel adaptation from 2009 that the anime was, of course, based off of. It is unknown what system the game will currently release on, but it is likely that it will be the PlayStation 5 as it's coming next year. The thing about Orgyra, and this is this is a show that we're going through with the two of us in the Rich Report, it is a masterpiece of a show. It, the, the writing is exceptional. It has me emotionally invested, probably a little more than I should. Because I'll be honest, I am extremely emotionally invested. I get angry whenever something happens that I don't like. I get very angry, like it's, I'm actually watching something happening, which, she, what is wrong with me? And, ugh. And to see video game adaptations are really fun. I'm hoping that it's localized so I'm able to play it. Good, good stuff coming. Good stuff coming. And that is also on top of another video game that's coming, which I know you are extremely excited for, so I'll let you introduce this one. Yeah, so later, or not later, but early next year, we're getting a ReZero video game, The Prophecy of the Throne. And not only is it releasing here in the U.S. and Europe, but it's also getting an English dub by Crunchyroll Games, which, for those that don't play a whole lot of anime games, this is huge. Anime games usually don't get English dubs, let alone on release day. They usually come as DLC if we get them at all. And because it's Crunchyroll Games that is in charge of the dub for the game, it means that we're getting the entirety of the English dub cast for the show voicing their characters in the game. This includes Sean Chipwalk as Subaru, Kaylee Mills as Amelia, Brown and Knickerbocker as Brim, Ryan Bartley as Rom, and the whole rest of the cast. And I am extremely excited about this. It should be a really fun game. Now, I looked up the story of this, and it goes as this. So basically, the Royal Selection... According to the Dragonstone Prophecy, there are five candidates for the royal selection. The problem with this is that there is a sixth candidate who has, has selected its candidacy to put themselves in the royal selection. So that means there's an imposter somewhere in here. What is this, Among Us? But everyone suspects Amelia to be the fraud here, of course. And now everyone is like, oh boy, uh, let's go after her, but we got to find out who the real imposter is. And of course, Subaru leads the charge on this because of course he does. Because he has to protect his princess, as we all know. Yeah, so, so uh, this game, of course, takes place in an alternate universe. It is not canon to the events of the show or manga or white novels because this is an alternate universe take on the third arc of this show, which is why we have Rem back which is awesome because we're going to be severely lacking in REM content for a while. <laughs> it's too soon, man. It's too, it's too soon. It's still, it happened weeks ago, but it still hurts. It yeah. still hurts. All the right. game will, of course, release on PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and PC in North America on January 29th, 2021, and Europe on February 5th, 2021. So if you aren't a PlayStation user, don't worry. You'll probably be able to play this on Switch or PC, too. 
Well, it's on the PS4, so that's great for me because let's be real. I'm a college student. I am not going to be able to afford the PS5 anytime soon. Also, I'd rather get a Switch first just so I can play those games first. So I'm very thankful it is coming out on the PlayStation 4. But now, that is actually a perfect segue into our weekly anime. Yes, Fruit Basket actually came back. I'm especially hyped about that one, and I'm going to talk a lot about that. But let's first talk about ReZero, because I know you have a lot to say. So I'll just let you discuss this episode, because I know you have a lot on your mind. Yes. So this is ReZero Season 2, Episode 6, or Episode 31 of the show overall, The Girls' Gospel. It starts immediately after the events of the end of the last episode, with Subaru waking up after getting killed by Elsa in the mansion. He awakens inside the sanctuary in the temple or whatever that he was taking his first challenge right after waking up from that. Unlike in the last episode where he woke Amelia up himself um, because she was having nightmares or freaking out or whatever because of whatever she was experiencing in her challenge, he waits for her to wake up instead. And then they go back and Subaru tries to convince the group to let him complete the trials himself instead of Amelia since he was already able to complete the first challenge. Amelia, of course, is not happy about this because it makes it seem like Subaru doesn't have faith in her ability, something that has happened before in season one. And the rest of the group, of course, doesn't want this to happen because Roswell has told them specifically that Amelia is the one that will be doing the trials, not Subaru. Well, yeah, because he he does know that, like, yeah, Subaru obviously will go all out, but Amelia really needs to, Amelia needs to prove herself one way or another. Because I'm sorry, I'm still not fully on board with her. She still has a lot of room to improve in the show. Now, the creator of Reasons said that Amelia is her favorite character. I'm still struggling to see why, because she continues to be upset with Subaru, which. I mean, I guess in this episode it kind of makes sense, but... Um, it's always... Amelia's, like, emotions about Subaru have always been rationalized throughout the show. They almost always come from Subaru making a dumb decision or saying something out loud that makes it sound like he's not respecting Amelia's decisions within the show. And that happens constantly, and it's kind of painful that it happens once again in this episode. In this episode, though, I don't fully agree that it is justified because Subaru is, you know, Amelia was clearly shook after, after the trials, and Subaru wants to, wants to help her with that, and she lashed out at him. Now, in the past, obviously, like, like arc three at the end of season one completely justified because Subaru was, in, was the biggest idiot to ever be an idiot ever. But in this instance, I'm not happy that she lashed out at him. He was only trying to, to help, considering she was clearly shook after that. I'm just like, oh, gosh, she, I, I don't, I, not very happy with her to say the least after that. I, I don't disagree with you, but like you said, she has to prove herself, and she knows this, and she fully agrees with Roswell in the fact that in order to kind of further and create more respect for herself among the community and the village and the people at Sanctuary, she needs to do this. Yes, just don't get angry at Subaru when he's just trying to be supportive. 
th th that's my main thing. Don't don't be angry with him when he's just trying to do his best for you. But that that's my main thing. Obviously, she does need to prove herself, and obviously, I want her to. But come on, give the guy a break. He's been like your biggest supporter. Give the guy a break for once. Mm -hmm. So what happens next? So after this, of course, because they refuse to accept Subaru as the person that's going to complete the challenges because of Roswell, Subaru unwittingly goes to Roswell and asks him for help convincing Garfield to transport the non-demi-human population back to their village. Because last time, it took Subaru two days to be able to convince Garfield and then move all of the people, the non-demi-humans, on the transport and move them back to their village. This, of course, ended with him getting killed by Elsa and probably most of the mansion, too. So in order to prevent that, he needs to get there earlier. Roswell, of course, refuses to help because Roswell, and instead tells Subaru that he should go there by himself with one companion. This companion, of course, being Rom, who can also go through the barrier safe because she's not a demi-human, she's a demon. Yeah, and we see Rom and Subaru's, I, I don't know what to call it at this point. Is it a French? It's, I don't even know if it's a friendship. Just Let's just say uh, their interaction. I'll, just, I'll leave it at that. And we see more of that. We see Rom continuing just to be like Rom, who is completely insufferable, who is just so blunt with a lot of times without emotion, so harsh. Man, how does Subaru put up with this? Like, she is so blunt. She is such a pain to be around. She's not likable in many areas, and especially without room, which – We'll get to, get to that. Yes. But with, especially without Rem, it's just, she's intolerable. And uh, I, I tell you, Subaru has, is the most graceful person ever. It is, it is ridiculous how graceful it is because I could not put up with Ron for two seconds. <laughs> I don't think I could either. Let's be honest about that. <laughs> um, of course, when they get to the mansion, Subaru and Ram are greeted by Petra, who's, of course, made, and we get to see. Petra and Rom re meet again, and their interaction with Rom realizing that Petra is now a new maid. We see a lot of Super and Petra's uh, interactions, and I actually really like Petra as a character now. She's very – she fills kind of the void that Rem left in the show with her being very supportive of Subaru and just like an all-around compassionate and kind character without having that same kind of devoted love that Rem had. So she's still separate, yet she still has a, that same kind of like place in the show, which is probably why Subaru feels so emotional about what happens with Petra in this episode. Yeah, Petra really uh, went from a you know a cute girl in the village who a lot of boys had a crush on to someone that oh hey she actually is really supportive of Subaru and it's really cool to see. Um, it's it's just it's just interesting how we have many different characters filling in at the, at the mansion and Frederica, Fe, Fe, Frederica, oh boy, yeah, Frederica. Of course, Subaru and Rom, because of the events and what Subaru saw in the mansion, he thinks that Frederica is working with the witch's cult or has some kind of alliance with them, mainly due to what Garfield has said, that she has an oath that she can't speak or break. 
And he, of course, believes that this is something to do with the Witcher's cult, which luckily it's not. And this is, of course, proven when Frederica is just as surprised as everyone else about Elsa showing up at the mansion. Elsa is a really big problem. Yes. Being a member of the witch's cult makes her incredibly deadly. And we already saw in the last episode easily she was able to, to kill Subaru. And we've seen her actions and how strong she was back during the first arc of the show when it took Reinhardt showing up to even do any serious damage to her. Yes, because, yeah, Elsa was the villain of the very first arc. And honestly, that... The fact that she returned, and that, that one arc felt so long ago. So for her, her to appear, as we saw at the end of the last episode, it really goes to show, oh boy, there are a lot of threats, and the archbishops are not even part of that right now. So it is very terrifying to see. And during the fight, because, you know, Rom, you know, Rom is doing Rom things in fights, but... Oh my gosh, what? Frederica, oh my gosh. She, she turned into this giant yellow fox thingy. Well, it was more like a tiger, actually. It was like a giant cat. Yeah, fox, tiger, whichever. It, 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 resembled, it kind of resembled a fox to me when I saw it. But yeah, just a, a giant animal. Let's go with that. And charges it just turns it just gigantic like the the scaling of the animation made her look as big as the building it was it was it was nuts and she just charges into the mansion right at elsa dear lord that scene was so cool yeah of course uh frederica does this so that rom and the rest can get away and before this they have a little argument over saving rem and beatrice who are still inside the mansion which Naturally, Subaru is very emotional about. Um, and Rom, since she has no memory of Rem and being the more rational or um, boneheaded member of the group, she is against them going back and saving the people in the mansion, saving themselves instead. Petra and Frederica luckily disagree with this and agree with Subaru that they should go back and save everyone. So that's what they do, and that's why Frederica charges back into the mansion to attack Elsa. Unfortunately, this doesn't work out too well, does it? No, not really. Um, of course, they go back into the mansion, and they notice that there's also mob beasts inside the mansion. And I'm, I'm wondering how they got in there, but I'm sure we'll find out either in the next episode or later on in the show. Rom, of course, goes to fight them off while Subaru and Petra head towards Rem's room. They get her and save her from Elsa. But before they can do that, the mansion kind of collapses on them. And we get some great first-person point-of-view scenes of Subaru just getting thrown all over the place in the mansion before finally regaining consciousness and seeing Ram and Petra's dead bodies. Uh, this is not good. This yeah. is not good. Obviously, Subaru can die and reset it, so that's good. But that was still rough to see. Like, like Petra is, like, might be the purest character in the show. That's awesome. currently not in a coma, yes. <laughs> That's currently not in a coma. This is, this is, this is a fact. Ugh. But the fact that the seeing her dead body, it, y yikes. Mm -hmm. 
And then, of course, Elsa appears to confront Subaru. Subaru runs towards Rem's room to protect her. And he opens the door, and he's in Beatrice's library. <laughs> and that's the episode. Yeah, and, that's, and the episode ends with Subaru being extremely mad at Beatrice for saving him. Which, without any context, that does sound really weird, but Subaru realizes he needs to die to reset it because, yeah, he doesn't like that Rom and, P- and Petra are dead. But Beatrice saves him, and they don't exactly have a good relationship. They never really have gotten along. Arc 2 is a perfect example of this. Yes. But she does have a debt with him to save him whenever he's in peril when he's at the mansion which has existed since the second arc of the show. This is true. And I'm looking forward to seeing their interaction at the beginning of the next episode. I'm definitely, I'm, I'm definitely just wondering where this arc is going to go. I, I've never been able to predict anything that's happened in the season. I just kind of go with it at this point. I don't know where this is going to go. I'm very excited to see where the next episode goes, and I imagine that we're going to get some much-needed Beatrice content, since we really haven't gotten much of her in a while, since, like, the second arc of the show. My last comment I'll make is, geez, every bad thing seems to happen at Roswell's mansion. Every, almost every bad thing. It's, It's like a breeding ground for, like, evil things. Well, the witch cult does want to kill Amelia to take her out of the running for the royal selection, and... Roswell as allied with her, which makes him a target for the witch's cult as well. So naturally, his mansion is like the number one place of hell breaking loose. Ugh, it is very unfortunate to see. I just hope everything is resolved well. Okay, you were very excited about this reserve episode. Okay, this is the episode that really left me excited. The new Fruits Basket episode. A lot of good stuff in this episode. All right. So basically in this episode, it is parent-teacher conference episode. Now, obviously, we went to school. We know that parent-teacher conferences are awful. Yes. I – parent-teacher conferences are the absolute worst. Okay. My freshman year of high school, my mom went to a parent-teacher conference, and my high school was very difficult, one of the the most difficult high schools in the state of Colorado. And – I got roasted to oblivion by my teachers, and I and my mom went home and grouted me for the weekend for things I didn't even realize I was doing wrong. After that, I forced, I did my absolute best to talk my mother out of going to all, all the other parent-teacher conferences, which luckily I was very successful because my grades were good enough. So I hate parent-teacher conferences with a burning passion. I think they're stupid, but, 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 in this show... They made parent-teacher conference topics and, and just happenings very, very wholesome, very fun, and it was done so well. So basically in this episode, we had three different meetings. One we didn't fully see uh, was, was – we saw a little bit of it. It was uh, Kyo and, and, and his master in one meeting. We saw Toru with Shigure in amazing content, amazing content. But the second half of the episode was Yuki's meeting. With yes, his... but I want to talk about Toru's first. We're going to do this chronologically. First. Well, hold on, hold on. Um, 
but yeah, I'm just I'm just saying like this. These are the three things we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Yuki's mother with Yuki, but we'll get to that. But let's start with, well, uh, let's start with Kyo's and Chrono in the. Well, it was Toru's for Toru's happened chronologically first, then Kyo's oh, yeah. because okay, so t- for Toru Shiguri, of course, accompanies Toru to her meeting as they agreed upon in the last episode because her grandfather is sick. And we get many awkward moments between him and the teacher because, well, Shigure and the teacher are ex-lovers. And the teacher is also currently dating Hattori. There is so much incredible content in the episode. And, you know, obviously we all have exes. And also we all have social groups. We, we also have instances in life where many people can relate to an ex dating a friend of ours which is is stuff that you know i have seen not not for my ex specifically but i've seen other people's exes date friends and it's it doesn't work out too well and uh, it can create some very it can it can create some very awkward situations and so to see the shigure and the teachers interactions was just hilarious and relatable content one reason why fruit basket is so great it's just so much relatable stuff that happens mm-hmm. and i just really enjoyed seeing it also every time hotry was brought up she was just blushing and just full of shock and it was so amazing to see yeah i really i also really like that the teacher calls out shigure's toxic behavior and his him using toru for his own gain and of course we immediately get a flashback to shigure and rin's conversation which we didn't see in the last couple episodes when Reen went to Shigure's house. And we see Reen call him out for the same behavior and accuse him of using Toru as well. Toru is so precious, and I get what Shigure is doing, but still, it's, it's just hard to see him use her like that, but at the same time, Shigure just has no chill in doing it. He just doesn't give any fill-in-the-blanks whatsoever. He... he he has his goals. He also is extremely cocky, and he says some things that just make you like, why? Like, how are you a functioning member of society with some of the things you're saying? Right. It, it's Yuki and Kyo constantly call him out for that, which is just great content every time. To see the interaction between Shigure and the teacher was – I was, I was laughing the entire time. It was just so fantastic. The animation heightened the humor in the episode – especially that scene specifically, just, it's just amazing stuff. Yeah. Speaking of Kyo, when Toru leaves her meeting, we of course see her meet up with Uwatani and Hanjima and the three of them see Kyo and his master walking up towards their meeting. And we get some nice little gossip from Uwatani and Hanjima commenting on how attractive Kyo's master is. Oh, it is absolutely hilarious. Now we saw Iwatani few a few episodes ago she actually met uh the, the rooster in the convenience store and now we see and now we see her crushing on on Kyo's master which i mean it's understandable he is a good looking guy and i'm a straight male i swear but you know it, it really provided some really amazing comedic moments which i'm very thankful about considering what would happen next but man Kyo is so relatable in the sense that he feels lost. He, he doesn't, he doesn't have much of a purpose besides spending time with Toru, which 
I completely understand that. And because he is the cab, he is destined to get locked away for the rest of his life, just like the previous cat. And I really don't want to see that because Kyo deserves to, to feel all the happiness. He deserves nothing but happiness after all the pain he has gone through. Uh, yeah. I, uh, justice for Kyo. Yeah. And during his meeting, of course, um, both his master and teacher and the teacher reassure him that his life is his own and that he can make his own decisions. And I'm really hoping that actually that does end up being the case. I hope Kyo doesn't get locked away. That would be really, really sad. And you know that Kyo's master is not just going to sit there and let that happen. He yeah. is going to fight for Kyo. And I'm excited to see the tension that that creates going down the road. The second half of this episode might be some of my favorite parts in this entire show. Mm-hmm. So... Basically, to, to keep it somewhat brief so I, so I don't gush over every single detail. I know you'll go into more of the details like you always do. But basically, Yuki and his mother have not had a great relationship. She basically just let uh, Akito do whatever she wanted to Yuki. She wasn't very supportive of Yuki. She considered Yuki nothing more than a tool and not, not her child. But due to parent-teacher conferences... Uh, she was there with Yuki, and Yuki basically sat there in silence as as the mother basically said that, oh, the future's already predetermined. He, she's already chosen the university for him. She has already chosen his path in life, and the teacher doesn't like this, obviously, because she wants Yuki's input. And she's basically just sitting at the parent-teacher conference just roasting Yuki uh, just bringing him down, Yuki is just very sad about this, but he can't bring himself to say anything against yes. her. Yes. And, and I love the visual of the table, like the distance between him, the, his mom, and this teacher growing and like the table getting elongated just to show how far detached he is from the conversation happening. Oh, yeah. It's a very beautiful, it's a very beautiful scene. And everything is just going so dreary. It's, it, it, the, the whole atmosphere is just nothing but dread. It is sadness. It is pain. It is everything. And you just think, oh, man, Yuki is in a terrible position. Is there anything that can happen? Well. <laughs> yeah, just when everything seems hopeless and we're all depressed and there's endless amounts of tension. It's immediately broken because IMA shows up to save the day. Yes. Oh, goodness. It, it, yes, IMA shows up at the door. And it is the biggest th- 180 role reversing mood scene I think I have literally ever seen in any media. I have literally thought about this. Has there been any like 180 moment? And I can't really think of many. That would be up there. The fact that IMA shows up, I and mean, usually when we show up, we're just like, oh my gosh. Oh no, know. it's him again. Oh no, oh, it's going to be so awkward. Oh boy. But this year, we're like, yes, yes. Hooray. Yeah, I've yes. never been happier to see IMA in my life. <laughs> I've never been so happy to see yeah, him, but specifically really anyone. Like he, he brought just a full ray of sunshine into this show, this scene. It was the most beautiful thing ever. And to top it off, Yuki said something that actually made me tear up. 
on top of all the happiness I was feeling because after we watched this that night, I, I needed to go to sleep to recover from just the shock of him showing up, it, just all the happiness, happiness overdrive. But Yuki said, uh, I actually can depend on him. And, oh, oh. Yeah. You yeah, I, 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 <laughs> so I really love um, IMA and Yuki actually, like, getting along. And I also really like that both, both of them just roasted their mom in this scene. And that's great. Um, I also really like the comparisons between how IMA used to be and how their mom is now. Yeah, we've really seen IMA's growth, the fact that he ignored Yuki growing up, and the fact that he just roasted his mother as well, was so, so satisfying. Great character development in the show, but to further this character development, IMA wants Yuki to stay and obviously continue the parent-teacher conference meeting, but Yuki's like, hold on, I'll be right back, walks out of the room and actually confronts his mother Oh boy. Basically, basically Yuki is like, I am my own person. Why can't you see me like that? In his, you know, formal and emotional tones. And the fact that Yuki had the initiative to walk out the classroom under the protection of Ayame, walk out and confront his mother with her back turned was so powerful. And it just shows how much Yuki has grown. And this is why, for me personally, Yuki is the character I relate to the most. Because he is he has social anxiety, which is something I've definitely suffered from, but also confronting his his hardest feelings and his toughest feelings with those that he is scared to confront them with. That is the biggest one of the biggest things in my life that I have struggled with. And for him to do that was so satisfying to see. And it's very inspirational for me personally. And that was the perfect cherry on top of one of the best scenes in all of anime, which is IMA showing up to save the day. Yeah, I also really like the kind of figurative look at Yuki being literally the bigger man and trying to fix a relationship that he has with his mom by him literally noticing that he is now bigger than her. <laughs> yeah, the... <sighs> It's interesting when when Yuki uh, touched her on the shoulder, uh, he said, "So thin." I, I I remember her being larger than life when I was a kid, and it just goes to show, yeah, not only is he bigger, but that's also kind of literal as well. The fact that he is he has outgrown her also physically too. So that's. That's just a great contrast there. I thought that really hit me hard as well when I saw that. <sighs> Fruits Basket continues to grow. It, it was already one of my favorite anime after season one, and now it is pushing like top five favorite TV show status. The wholesomeness continues to grow. The, the last few episodes of season two have just been nothing but fantastic. It is... As, as great as JoJo's and Reezer are, it is the best anime going on right now. Yeah, it's the best slice of life anime of all time. And this episode is a perfect example as to why. Yes, the fact that the fact that Uragairu is a masterpiece and it's not even the best slice of life anime is insane. That's just because of Fruits Basket is so good. <sighs> 
lot of great stuff from this episode. Well, I'm very happy after talking about that, but unfortunately, my strong emotions are going to have to be sedated a little bit because. Yeah, we had a yeah. we had a kind of kind of slightly depressing episode of JoJo's this week. Slightly. Yeah. So this is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Golden Wind episode 35 or episode 148 of the show overall. The Requiem quietly plays part two. Uh, this episode, of course, begins right after the events of the last episode with Bruno in Diavolo's body taking on Silver Chariot Requiem and removing one of Chariot's arms to try to regain the arrow. But when he does this, it seems that his stand kind of goes berserk and attacks him back. Yeah, so Silver Chariot Requiem can actually control other people's souls, which... Is, might be the most OP thing I've ever seen. Yeah, and of course, by extension, that means it can control people's stands as well. Yeah, that that is the most OP thing I've seen in JoJo's. The fact that imagine if Kira could control a crazy diamond, for example. Mm-hmm. Like that, that 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 that's game over before anything even happens. The so thing the that, that the thing that doesn't make this like super OP is the fact that it can't like willingly control other people's stands. It only controls them if they try to take the arrow away. So That is true, but the thing is, the biggest objective is to get the arrow, so that's so in this instance, it is the most OP thing ever. Yes. Uh, Of course, the gang notices that since they can't get the arrow, their best course of action would be preventing Diavolo from getting it, and since Bruno is in Diavolo's body, they assume that that means that Diavolo is inside Bruno's body. Um, so Bruno orders Mista to shoot his own body to immobilize who they believe to be the boss. Um, once he's immobilized, the group then kind of rejoices about maybe finally be, be, being able to defeat the boss, and Narancia talks about returning to Napoli and talking to Fugo again, and during this, uh, Bruno, of course, orders um, them to further attack um, his body. So Mista asks Trish to pass some bullets from his boots. And while the bullets are being passed, we notice that time skips. And the whole gang is, of course, wondering how this could have happened. They don't see King Crimson anywhere. They didn't see Bruno's body move. How could he have possibly been able to erase time? And upon this realization, Polnareff finally realizes that the boss isn't just two people, but two separate personalities, and that the actual boss, Diavolo himself, is probably not the person inside Bruno's body. And right after this realization, they notice blood is dripping from above them, and they look up and see Giorno's body with Norancia's soul inside of it impaled into a fence. Uh, Yeah, this was... This was very painful because I was watching with you and you said, hey, wait a second. Where is Jorno's body? And I'm like, and I and a shiver went down my spine when you said this. And I thought to myself, it's a good question. Where is his body? And then I start to see blood. Literally, as you said that, like, I'm so mad at you for doing this because you made this even worse. Is when I saw blood dripping, I remember looking at you like, dude, what did you do? No. no, why? This no, 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 no. This can't be happening. 
Yeah, you basically see Giorno's body completely impaled by by the by the gate, and they bring his body down. And yeah, and Giorno, of course, tries to heal it. And he, while doing so, he notices that Narazio's soul is no longer attached. And we see Giorno cry for the first time ever in the whole show at the realization that there is that that his body is empty. There's no one inside of it, and he can't do anything to save Narancia. He wanted. He just wanted to go back to school, man. Yeah. He just. He just wanted to live a normal life. Go back to school, protect Trish, but no. Yeah, and unlike with Abakio's death, we get a way more um, emotional reaction from all of our characters. Bruno is actually trembling this time, and while while he isn't crying, he's still visibly shook from. Um, Narancia being dead. Polnareff is in complete disbelief, likely having PTSD from Abdal's death in Stardust Crusaders. Because <laughs> this is very similar to that, where it's just very sudden and there's nothing any of them could do. And Trish and Mista are bawling their eyes out. Yeah, because like, like I've said before in this podcast, my favorite fight in all of JoJo's is Vanilla Ice. And part of the reason for that is the absolute shock of Abdal just getting taken out almost immediately in the fight, and and, there, and there's no time to grip because Polnareff has to defend himself, and that fight was so incredible. And yes, you mentioned PTSD from that. Yeah, that, that that's what I thought of too. Like That's one reason why this hits so hard, because I remember exactly how I felt when Abdal just got taken out. I'm just like, oh no. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was bad. And Seeing like Bruno actually trembling and being genuinely shook, that that was the that was the hardest part because with with other with other moments he was just like, oh, this is terrible. But we well, because keep- he had the B. Someone pointed out that a lot of the char- during Abakio's death, a lot a lot of them, uh, Mista and Bruno especially, were putting on a strong face because of Narancia, because Narancia was the one that was the most emotional during Abakio's death, and they had to be strong for him, but now that Narancia is dead, they can't do anything but grieve. And it's, there's no reason for them to put on the strong face. It's very unfortunate. Rest in peace. We are now down to Trish, Mista, Giorno, Bruno, although yeah, he's on death's door and, and Polnareff, the turtle, which is still great, but him like grieving over Narancia's death, like that is. It takes something like that for me not to laugh every time Polnareff speaks in the turtle. I'm sorry, it is always funny. But it is Polnareff being in like shook in disbelief while being inside the turtle. Like, like normally that would be hilarious, but because of just how sad Narancia's death, and this is probably the saddest death in JoJo's, especially when you consider that this is the only time a character has died where they didn't die for something. They didn't. Narancia didn't die to save his friends. He didn't die to power up our heroes, to give his last breath of Hamon, to reveal the secret behind the villain's stand, to save his allies from getting killed. He just died. Yeah. And At least Abakio got to show the face. Yeah, at least with Abakio's death, we weren't what the boss's face looks like. At least with Risotto's death, it put the bot... He wounded the boss to the point where Abakio was able to show 
um, the boss's face. But with Narancia's death, he just kind of died. And for, for no reason. It was a meaningless death, and that's one of the reasons why it's so sad and heartbreaking. So after he dies, what happens next? Yeah, so the game, of course, collect themselves and go after Chariot Requiem to attempt once again the sealed stand arrow before Diablo goes first. And, of course, with the realization that since it's two separate personalities and they have been put in different bodies, they have no idea where the boss is. On top of that, one of the reasons why King Crimson was able to kill Narancia so easily without them even seeing it is because all their stands are empowered because of Silver Chariot Requiem. Because he can, of course, control people's souls. Of course. Like, yeah, it is so OP. And when we see Narancia die, we see uh, King Crimson, the stand itself, we just see, see him hiding in the shadows mm -hmm. and no one can see him, which makes it even more frightening. Yeah. And Polnareff, of course, realizes that because Silver Chariot Requiem can force stands to antagonize their users if they try to go for the arrow, Polnareff notices that if someone without a stand were to go after the arrow, they wouldn't have such repercussions. So using his turtle mouth, he grabs the stand arrow away from Silver Chariot and the episode ends. <sighs> What a doozy of an episode that was. Still got another part to this, because, yeah, we still got to get that stand arrow. And we're pretty close to the ending of Golden Wind, which, what a journey this has been. Yeah. I'm honestly amazed that this season is as good as it was, because I was really on the fence before it started because of how good DIU was. I didn't think that Araki would be able to write something as good as DIU for part five. And from what people have told me, the manga for Golden Wind isn't that good. So I'm kind of amazed at how good the anime adaptation is. I'm thankful that David Productions made this so good. And obviously Diamonds Unbreakable is a masterpiece, but to see, to see how good this was, was incredible. And I'm excited to see how this wraps up. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that no one else dies. I can't take any more. Well, Bruno's probably going to die. I'm not counting that. But I'm, ho I'm hoping at least Mista and Trish also live through this as well as Jorno. Yeah. And Polnareff. We need Polnareff Turtle to stay around for a while. Yes. It's too hilarious. I, I, want, I want all the Polnareff Turtle content. I, I just love it. I hope that, por that Turtle Polnareff appears in Stone Ocean. <laughs> oh, that would be... Because <laughs> like be... him and Jodoro's react like, interactions would be hilarious. Oh, absolutely. It probably won't happen, but it'd be neat if it did. It would be really neat. Those are my final thoughts from this episode. You have any final thoughts? No, I, I mean, rest in peace, Narancia. He's going to be rest so in peace, Narancia. I'm going to miss him so much. It's going to yeah. be weird not seeing Aerosmith ever again. And I've really liked, after Narancia's death, we see Aerosmith fly, like seemingly fly over into the clouds. And we see... Sardinia, where Abakio died, and we see Abakio's dead body, and we see Fugo looking up at the sky, thinking that he's seeing Aerosmith above him, but it's just a bird. And we see that bird fly into the clouds and into the sky to be with all the, all the rest of our losses and JoJo's. Very unfortunate, indeed. Yeah. It was, it very, was a very beautiful, beautiful scene. scene. It was yeah. beautiful. And I also really like Giorno's final line to 
Norancia, no one will hurt you again. I'll take your body back to Napoli. And him covering Narancia's body in vines so that he could, uh, so that his body will be protected and be safe. All right, Giorno. That, that was that was a that was a great bro thing to do. Yeah, I I gotta say, Giorno has been a really great character for the last few episodes. I'm very impressed with how well written he's been, considering how lacking he was in the character department at the beginning of Golden Wind. Yeah, I mean, regardless how good he is, like like the last few episodes in the in the last in these upcoming few. I still think he is the weakest of the JoJo protagonists because I still think Jonathan is underrated in Phantom Blood, but he has starting to get more of a character lately, which I do like. Yeah. All right. Wow, this, this episode has lasted over an hour. I think it has lasted about an hour and 10 minutes so far. But that will do it for episode five of Nerd Explosion. Be sure to check us out on the Cannon Clark Spotify and the Cannon for Sean Clark, the Cannon Clark himself, and John Trub. I will see you in the next episode where we will be live on KLGX LP Flagstaff. Have a great day.